Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello and welcome to the red box politics podcast in the times i'm matt Chorley. thank you to everyone who got in touch last week so much they enjoyed our brexit free episodes do get in touch redbox at thetimes.co.uk find us on twitter at times red box or better still post a review on itunes and tell us what you think of this and future episodes now i know it's important and we'll decide what sort of country we live in for years and decades to come but whisper it my god it's boring so we're going to try and do the same this week if anyone mentions the b word i'm going to use my brexit buzzer and we will um, try and quickly move on. Joining me this week to discuss things which are much more interesting and probably just as, if not more, important. Roland Watson, foreign editor of The Times on solving a problem like Korea. Grant Tucker, Times diarist and gossip getter on what MPs get up to late at night. But first, Times columnist Rachel Sylvester on the Tories' problem with getting down with the kids. Theresa May is planning a charm offensive towards young voters in her party conference speech, with Number 10 frantically searching for policies that might reverse the Conservatives' catastrophic collapse in support among the under-40s. Tuition fees and housing policy are top of the list, but will the Tories ever be forgiven for taking a hard line on the big issue of the day by a generation that overwhelmingly supports Remain? And I'm not mentioning Brexit. Oh, I've not got my buzzer ready. I've not got my buzzer ready. Uh, So, uh, Rachel... If we can get through this without mentioning the B word, uh, that would be excellent. Um, this is interesting. The, the sort of Tories have woken up to the idea three months after the general election. It's not taking them long. They, they need to find something to appeal to young people. I think there's something really interesting going on, and, and a, a lot of Tory MPs I've spoken to are, are worried about this. That for young voters, is they used to be assumed that young people would grow into becoming Tories, if you like, when they got old. I think it was Winston Churchill who supposedly said, "If you're not a liberal, but by the time you're 30, you're you've got no heart, and if you're not a conservative, by the time you're." after you're 30 you've got no head um and it's that sense that people would when they settled down they had a family they had a house you know they started being cautious rather than idealistic then they would become conservatives and actually a lot of those things 
are much harder for the younger generation now. So home ownership's falling, uh, you know, wage stagnation, people aren't getting promoted in the way they were. And those sort of roots into conservatism, if you like, uh, are dying out. David Willits described, compares it to the French film Jean de Florette, where the guy blocks up the spring to try and kind of scupper his younger neighbour's chances. And then it's the older farmer who himself is destroyed by this sort of act of self-harm. And at the same time, there's a kind of generational value shift, if you like, on things like, you know, um, social liberalism, gender issues, gay marriage, and also, dare I say, Europe, where people aren't necessarily going to change as they get older. So the Tories, if they want to regenerate their membership are going to have to change themselves and there seems a slight sense of the the sorts of things that the conservatives like to talk about like home ownerships they talk about help to buy and getting people on the ladder for a whole generation of people it's they're concerned about rent and being ripped off by landlords and rising rents and the security of Tenancy exactly. And you know, the Tories used to talk about themselves as the property-owning democracy or wanting to create a property-owning democracy. Well, that's no good if nobody can afford to buy a property. But also if nobody even thinks even they'll thinks ever be able to. So exactly. it's not even an aspect. It's, it's not even a pin so to an aspiration. they're sort of sounding increasingly irrelevant. It's not just that people disagree with them. It's just they're not listening because they seem irrelevant. And I think the sort of smart, younger Tories are really onto this and worried about it. Uh, and number 10 now, you, you hear more and more, is trying to come up with some policies that might catch people's attention and it's not just younger voters but actually the older voters who are worried about their children not being able to buy a home and they so rent actually is one of the issues that Downing Street's looking at and sort of coming up with policies to protect that kind of generation rent but then also to um, promote uh, more building of affordable homes and that kind of thing but the question is whether or not you end up with you know, confronting the old Tory taboos of building on the green belt and whether Theresa May in the end will be willing to face down her more um, traditional uh, old guard. One of Theresa May's big problems with the youth is is that she doesn't have a name that lends itself readily to being chanted from uh, (laughs) uh, festivals or or terraces or anywhere. It's sort of... 3-1 3-1 split of syllables um, is a very uneasy Do you think that? Do you think that was the, what the problem was in the election? I th- fundamentally. It's, <laughs> it's, the, it's one of the unexplored issues. But deeper, it, being a, a, a distance from Westminster, you get the impression that um, there is no one uh, there's no one in the, on the Tory backbenches who, um, who may represent uh, a younger generation. Um, one of the one of the interesting blockages uh, in the sort of exquisite torture of the current political process is there is there's not only no challenger to her uh, from her own generation uh, there doesn't doesn't seem as I say from a distance to be anyone um, coming through who might speak for the younger generation. But there's something about Grant. There's something about young. Tory MPs who they even look gold they're sort of it's the way they dress it's the way they dress and the way they carry themselves and there's, sort of, there's this sort of young fogey or young grandee tendency there are there are some younger MPs on the Labour and even the SNP benches who look and talk like younger people but even the younger ones on the Tory benches don't I do tend to agree uh, but there's a few in the new intake in 2017 who are really concerned about this this idea that the party of aspiration which they see the Conservative Party as just doesn't exist anymore. People are not aspiring to buy their own home, uh, can't save up any money, and that kind of thing is being watched, and they're really worrying that they could lose their seats in a few years' time. So who 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 should we be watching who you think is good? 
from uh, the new generation. Kemi Badnock, I think, is very good. Yeah. Um, uh, Bim, I forgot what his surname is. Uh, he's very good. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a few new ones coming up, and they're very aware of what's going on. And they've, uh, they were, I was speaking to uh, Bim last night, actually. They're setting up policy groups based just on millennials and how to appeal to young people. Because also, it's not just the 18 to 24s, the kind of student, idealistic, Corbynista type people. They're actually worried about everyone up to the age of 40. I think in the election, the tipping point for being more likely to vote Tory than Labour was 47. That's pretty middle age. We're not talking about sort of radical youth here. It's going pretty high up the age barrier. I think what's amazing is the correlation between owning your own home and voting Tory. And if you're not buying your own home till 45, then they're not going to get the votes from people under 40. I was speaking to one cabinet minister who said actually he thought it was housing that was the issue that lost them the election for precisely that reason. Because if you don't have a house, you don't have a stake in that kind of capitalist dream that the Tories promote. The um, Adam Smith Institute came out with a millennial manifesto last week. um, And their main thing was greenbelt reform and building on well, it's interesting because I wrote about this a couple of, a week ago, so ago in the Red Box email. I just dug around in the YouGov polling, which they break down by ages, and uh, on voting intention under eighteen to twenty-four year olds, sixty-six percent said they vote Labour, fourteen percent said they would vote Tory. It's completely shocking. But on housing, only four yeah. percent mm. thought the Tories had the best policy on housing, mm. despite all the money they've spent on help to buy and helped by ISAs and all that sort of stuff, mm. which, you know, D- David Cameron and George Osborne here would have said, well, there was an offer there. But um, as you say, they're not, they don't even think they need the help to no, buy. They, they can't even afford to, to that. They can't even that. afford to save, never mind yeah. save up a deposit. So, yeah. So, Roland, you've, you were political at the Times in the 2010 general election. Okay. Um, so, you, you've, you know, you've seen it up close as well as being, you know, escaping and having a normal job. Um, what do you... Are the toys just barking up the wrong tree here? Is there, is there a risk that they, they could throw a whole load of time and effort and money at this group, but Jeremy, they can't trump the sort of Corbynista phenomenon? I think there's a real risk that they they do this in a sort of faddish way, um, that, that they've spent the summer scratching their heads and someone's come up with the bright idea for conference, which is to come up with a raft of measures designed to target the youth. Um, <laughs> and it'll be published with some graffiti on the front. <laughs> uh, with a if, wrapper. <laughs> if, 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 if that's the starting point, uh, it's almost certainly doomed to failure um, because uh, they won't carry it well. The, the point, though, is that there is a genuine issue about intergenerational unfairness that has to be addressed. It's mm. nothing to do with sucking up to the young voters, actually. It's to do with the fact that the baby boomers own, I think, half of the wealth and assets in this country now, and that the younger generation can't afford to even mm. get a foothold. So that's a sort of genuine policy issue that should be addressed for the good of the country, not for the sake of sort of party I think politics. like a lot of politics, if they get the policy right, people will buy into it regardless of their age and, and regardless regardless of where they're coming from. The, the, the danger for them is they... Uh, is they do it in a sort of niche and gimmicky fashion, uh, which which makes them look needy rather than uh, carrying authority. Grant, when you try to balance out that intergenerational unfairness, as the uh, this government just tried to do at the last election, uh, they got hammered for social care policy. That was the one thing. So they lose a whole swathe of votes to the old people then, while trying to win the votes of young people. So it's very much old v young. And how do you win round both sides? Well, you just make the argument better. You don't drop a social care policy out of the sky and don't make the inter- intergenerational. <laughs> Well, and the then prob- you turn on it and then claim that you haven't you turned. The problem with that policy wasn't actually the intergenerational fairness issue, which I think was right, taking the money to pay for it. The problem was it didn't solve the social care
healthcare problem because you it didn't level out the imbalance between people with dementia and cancer, for example. So it did, it sort of raised one whole set of controversies without actually dealing with the fundamental problem that needed to be solved. Well, it's a fascinating subject, and it's interesting to see how it pans out with um, over the Tory conference to see how many rappers on skateboards we see <laughs> on stage during Theresa's speech. Uh, let's move on, though, and this is uh, the Times foreign editor Roland Watson. What do you do with a problem like Korea? Uh, The answer from a divided United Nations last night was not much. Uh, President Trump wanted a package of sanctions that personally targeted Kim uh, and imposed an oil embargo on North Korea. Uh, But opposition from Russia and China, who both have vetoes at the Security Council, uh, meant that that was diluted heavily into a a very modest package, um, which caps oil exports and slaps a few sanctions here and there. It tightens the screws a little, uh, but no one expects the new measures to curb Kim's nuclear ambitions or end the current crisis. So where does that leave the balance of power in President Trump's first test of brinkmanship? Uh, And does it bring the risk of hostilities in Southeast Asia and further afield any closer? Well, that's a cheery thought. What's your answer to that, the, 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 your last question then? Does it, do the latest round of sanctions make hostilities more or less likely? I, I think the answer is probably neutral, starting from a point of view that, that um, you have to assume hostilities are unlikely, um, despite the rhetoric from both sides. Um, I, the US um, the US knows that a, a, a war would be an absolute catastrophe um, and no president would ever be forgiven um, for the for the devastation that it left behind equally um, a reasonably hard-headed assessment of uh, of Pyongyang uh, is that it would serve it doesn't it would serve Kim, Kim's interests, um, uh, not at all, um, for him to be the first to launch a nuclear strike on Guam or even uh, any kind of strike across the border into South Korea. Um, however, there is a big caveat with that. Um, no one knows the mind of Kim Jong-un. It's it's ironic that we're talking about sanctions uh, against a country that has effectively sanctioned itself over the last three or four decades. Uh, It's not interested in having relationships with any other capital, even Beijing, arguably. Uh, And it's not really interested in trading with the rest of the world. That's not how um, that's not how its economy works. So. What we got from New York last night was essentially pretty meaningless, and it was more about superpowers in the in uh, uh, superpowers scrapping and, and and sort of arm wrestling each other to a score draw. Um, as long as as long as you take the view that it's not in Kim's interests to destroy his own regime, and that his pursuit of nuclear capability is all about self-preservation, then you can hope that hostilities are a, are a distant prospect. So, I mean, the, the main point of sanctions on any other country when there's been sanctions against Russian businesses and businessmen and that sort of thing is always to put in the hope that those people then put pressure on the government in question. But presumably there's no... That pressure isn't going on in North Korea. Everyone outside is cast as the enemy anyway. So it all just reinforces whatever mindset... That it, that, that, that's a great danger. I mean, one one of the one of the problems with all of this is the the 
lack of dialogue with anyone who can claim with authority to speak for Kim and North Korea. Um, it's an enormous problem for the Americans. They don't have an embassy, they don't have a consulate, they don't have any diplomats. There are hardly any Americans in Pyongyang. The only, the only three Americans in Pyongyang uh, are, are academics in jail. Um, the only uh, way sanctions could work is if they targeted Chinese companies and Chinese individuals who did business uh, with with North Korea across the border. It's important to distinguish when talking about the relationship with China, uh, the overall uh, fraternal relations between the two capitals uh, and the personal relations between the leaders. Um, personal relations are in a terrible state. It seems quite clear that Kim is infuriating Beijing um, uh, with every every missile test. Um, that's partly because um, he risks making his own pursuit of, of, of a, a bomb a problem for China. It's the last thing they want. China wants it to be an American problem. It's one of the reasons China says so little. Um, it's also easy to overplay the strategic nature of the relationship. Um, Mao is always or, or, always uh, brought into play as suggesting the relationship was like between uh, Beijing and Pyongyang was like lips and teeth. Um, what he really said um, is that without the lips, the teeth are pretty exposed. Um, uh, Korea, uh, North Korea is a useful buffer zone to Beijing um, to encroaching American influence. Um, so it, it, is, it, it is in large part intractable. Uh, and one of, the, one of the lessons from last night in New York really is that the world needs to uh, admit um, uh, that we're living with a nuclear uh, North Korea and that's what we've got to deal with rather than its pursuit of uh, nuclear capability. And wait, so is there a sense that the British government is, I mean, we've got a lot on our plates, but they were sort of sitting this, this one out? It does feel like we're irrelevant, doesn't it? And, you know, I don't think Boris Johnson is a huge titan in this debate on the international Well, Michael, Michael Fallon uh, has repeatedly, I think, well, I say repeatedly, at least twice over the last few days, made, made a bid for relevance by pointing out that London is closer <laughs> to Pyongyang than uh, LA. Like many American yeah, yeah, yeah. cities. Uh, um, so he is trying, trying to bring it home. It's not quite the 45-minute warning. It yet. feels like it's, a, it's almost like sort of politics as showbiz, isn't it? With these two kind of reality TV stars vying to present an image to the world. And, and it's almost like brinkmanship, showmanship. So I, there was that extraordinary photo of um, uh, North Koreans with the banquet to celebrate the nuclear test. Uh, and it was all photographed and filmed... Um, and it, it, it was almost like a movie, wasn't it? And I was reading um, The Guardian columns, Jonathan Friedman's latest thriller over the summer, which is called To Kill a President. It's all about a sort of very overexcited, narcissistic American president who's about to launch nu nuclear war on North Korea. And it's, it's almost like fiction and fact were merging. And you just have to hope, I suppose, that there's this brinkmanship going on on both sides and that in the end, behind the scenes, there's a sort of quiet diplomacy um, involving the Chinese and, you know, the State Department that will be 
making sure it doesn't really end in a sort of well, horror movie. I mean, there is an art to brinkmanship, um, uh, which was played out throughout the Cold War, and it involves knowing um, where your own limits are uh, and also where your opponent's limits are. Um, the Do you tr- think Trump knows where his... Uh, I think uh, I, I think Jim Mattis, the Defence Secretary, knows where America's <laughs> limits are. Uh, it, it's not it's not clear that Trump does. That, in a way, can be useful. Um, you know, the, the madman theory of of, of uh, uh, Nixon's approach to the Cold War was: you want to keep them guessing, you want to keep your opponents um, wrong-footed. Um, that that I'm not sure that I'm not sure that bothers Kim that much. Um, what happened? Something happened, and I, did, I haven't sort of really understood this. Not that long ago, everything we heard coming out of North Korea was, isn't it funny the way they photoshopped some extra boats in the sea? Look, he's pointing at a tank, but the, there's no weapon on it. And it was all sort of, isn't it amusing the way he's trying to show he's got great uh, sort of military might, and he hadn't. And then sort of the next time you tune into the North Korean news they've got a nuclear weapon they're going to point it at America well one of the problems is that is they've made they've made the the West look foolish because the West has drawn so many red lines about uh, acquiring uh, short missile technology that could reach Japan medium range missile technology that could go a bit further long range missile technology um, uh, or an atomic capability uh, uh, that, uh, and the ability to miniaturise it. And, and Kim has waltzed through all of those. A more specific answer to your question is that this guy, unlike his father, uh, is particularly determined and particularly ruthless and possibly particularly st- strategic and hard-headed as well. Uh, he has pursued this with a single-mindedness that his father... Uh, did not have. Um, he's really accelerated his missile tests, um, and he's and as a result, they have made several quite swift, uh, uh, very very pivotal uh, developments. Are you are you sleeping well at night, Grant? <laughs> I'm absolutely terrified. No, um, the thing I find fascinating here is we talk about sanctions and what happened last night, and if Chinese business agreed to put sanctions on North Korea, and that then kind of starves North Korea's economy. Surely when a mad dog is pushed into a corner and the economy faces complete collapse, that's when they attack. So I'm not sure how what good these sanctions will actually do. And is it better to kill the dog before they attack America than... Wait for the, wait for wow, that's a, that's a hard line start from the, <laughs> from the Times diary. <laughs> well, they're both good points uh, uh, um, on, on the latter. Um, if there was any American intelligence on the ground about uh, where Kim was, where his leadership was at any given time, uh, I'm sure there'd be a, a, a team of Navy SEALs uh, poised across the border, ready to strike. Is the dog Kim or the nuclear weapon? <laughs> uh, Kim and... Oh, both of them, both but, of them, they're the same. Um, uh, the, the, lack of, the lack of intelligence is an enormous problem. As, as is the fact that their accelerated development means that their missiles are much harder to hit now. They're much more mobile. And just before we move on, just in terms of your job as the foreign editor and wanting to, you know, you can't just feel like you're relying on sort of White House spin, but how do you go about trying to cover this story when you've only really got one side of it? 
Well, the, the best North Korean intelligence comes out of Seoul. Um, so we are we're, 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 we're quite well plugged in there. That means we're taking it through the prism, South Korea's prism, rather than Washington. <laughs> um, it's it is it, it's a very very opaque um, uh, 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 situation in Pyongyang and and hard to read. Uh, but there are people who. There are people who are better at reading it than others. Um, uh, and so that's that's who you have to rely on. Well, it's fascinating stuff. And obviously the Times uh, forum pages are the best on Fleet Street. So, uh, Indeed. Absolutely. Right, let's move on. Uh, talk about something a little closer to home. This is Grant Tucker. A weakened Prime Minister and a tight majority means more and more late-night sittings in Parliament and more trade for the Commons bars. But why do politicians think it's a good idea to make big decisions in the middle of the night? So, without talking specifically about what they were voting uh, for on uh, Monday night and Tuesday night, and it seems like every night when Parliament is sitting for the for the rest of the next five years, um, this is interesting. What, what you were you were out on the terrace last night, because that's what divers do. Indeed. What were MPs doing? Were they closely following the debate in the House and the finer points of the? bill that we won't mention there were lots of drinks uh, lots of cigarettes there was lots of jokes uh, there's a group of tory in panama hats that just come back from gibraltar to come and vote um it was a strange atmosphere uh, jess phillips was there but she was only on the diet coke because uh, she was the designated driver for the labor party that night take a few of them back home <laughs> um, but no it was strange that what i really saw was a divide between the younger mps and the older mps uh, and a lot of the new intake well, i'm knackered i just want to go to bed um and a lot of the old ones like oh this is like the old days this is great um emily thornbury came up to me and said this i've had a few old codgers come up to me and and say oh stop moaning about all night sittings they're fantastic they're great i just want to tell them to f off <laughs> um, so there's a real divide in parliament with whether they agree with late night sittings or not. But I think there's a serious point to be made. Is it a good thing that MPs are making decisions at one o'clock in the morning after many, many drinks? They're absolutely knackered. I'm not sure it is. Um, and tonight again, I think the debate could go on until 3am on the finance bill. And um, there was a certain type of sort of veteran Tory MP who are delighted it's the return to Maastricht-style all-night sittings you know, breakfast at four in the morning on the terrace. Um, but at a time when, I mean, particularly the legalistic uh, conversation, having statutory instruments and all that sort of stuff, it's quite technical. You know, there are, and the votes are going to be very close, and one or two people either way will make all the difference. And if... Could you a Mark Redless and fall asleep on the terrace and miss the vote? So... But it also, this could, that could happen. That's a real issue. And MP, and it was after, Prosecco, after so. the 2010 election, there were stories about... It may have even been Mark Reckless trying to get out of the stranger's bar and thought the door was locked. In fact, it was his own foot that was blocking <laughs> and was demanding that somebody open the door immediately. I mean, that's off to, off to vote on. And actually, probably on that case, there was a big majority. It didn't make any difference either way. But it only takes one or two MPs heading off in the wrong direction. The, the other strange thing about last night as well was that the debate didn't start till 2.30 in the afternoon. Why you couldn't have started at 10 o'clock in the morning and finished at maybe 8 or, or even 10 o'clock at night? That would have been a lot more preferable. Rachel, what do you make of this? Is this a good idea, these late-night sittings? Well, I think, especially for young families, it'd be much better, as you say, Grant. You start in the morning, you end even at 7 or 8 o'clock, and then you vote. You do the same again the next day, and you carry on for as many days as it takes. There's no need for them to be held until 
three in the morning. I do think there's an interesting culture change that's been happening about the attitude to alcohol among MPs. I don't know whether maybe they have a different attitude with the diarist, but <laughs> certainly the younger MPs are much less, um, there's much less alcohol consumed now than there was when I started in the lobby in 96. I bought a lot of Diet Cokes and tonic waters last night. Yeah, so. I mean, the drinking at lunchtime has almost completely died out, yeah. apart from, I think, Ken Clark. Charlie Faulkner will still have a glass of wine but the the kind of younger MPs it's sparkling water if you're absolutely really letting rip <laughs> otherwise it's tap <laughs> and um is there's a so there's a change in it used to be very much a kind of social atmosphere in the House of Commons and now it's much more professional which is good really for the for the business that's going on but it does it makes a, a it changes the atmosphere it was what was quite funny actually was I spoke to a three ex MPs who had come back just to be part of the atmosphere. They hadn't oh, been in the house for 10 years, but they came back, oh, all night sittings, I'm enjoying this, and they were more of the drinkers, and you're right, the younger ones, um, in the lay party, were very much sticking on the Diet Cokes. Uh, one, one person I spoke to came out for a cigarette and went back to his office and said, I'm not going to drink. He came down about 11 o'clock and just said, there's only so much Candy Crush you can play. And then bought a lager. As a whip, you haven't really earned your spurs. In fact, you can barely call yourself a whip unless you've patrolled Westminster's lavatories <laughs> at half past three in the morning to flush out anyone who's fallen asleep and get them into the division lobby. Um, so so th these guys, these guys will, will earn their stripes. But on Rachel's point, I think that a serious point is um, these nights, um, the cumulative effect does put an enormous strain on families. Yeah. Uh, and during the Maastricht years and, and, and back into the 70s, um, uh, marriages and domestic arrangements were, were put under, under huge stress and, and many broke up as a result. Uh, and I'm sure Westminster is probably more alive to... Uh, this than it than it was in previous decades, but but night after night after night of this will will um, will will bring its own personal pressures. There's a kind of boarding school atmosphere sometimes. I remember, do you remember that was it a couple of years ago in the House of Lords had an all night sitting and they all brought in their camp beds and their little mattresses and they were all sleeping in their offices and they were really excited that's kind of okay if it's almost like a special week camp you know <laughs> this whole parliament is going to be yeah. but, but actually it's not necessary for it if the if the government allowed enough time during the day to debate this legislation until however long it took they could they could fit it in in properly I sensible family-friendly hours particularly when the queen's speech was not awash with um legislation this year because of the such a small majority it's not like they've got a lot else to do the commons is about to break for uh, three weeks in for the conference season including for the lib dem conference they've, there's only 12 of them yeah they could just have their they could have their conference on the terrace <laughs> while they were waiting for a vote. while they were waiting for a vote they could fit it in vince could get up in and do a speech phone boxes. exactly yeah. um do you think that the, the long term the parliament will have to sort of change and adjust to Trouble is, it has changed quite a lot. We've been through this for so many years, haven't we? And I think they're they're slowly, slowly are changing and improving. But they should go further, and I'm sure they will eventually. It's back to the generational divide, isn't it? The, you're not going to get anybody wanting to be an MP if if it completely destroys your life. And you're right. One sort of works to bender is fine but if it's every night that's when people start you know think hang on a minute well, but that is your job basically <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the closer we get to the withdrawal date of article 50 you Ooh. wonder Whoa. Beep, beep, beep. 
is... That's a bit close, you, but go on. You uh, wonder whether you have to turn it into a 24-hour parliament, because everyone's going to have a... wants to have a say, give a speech, oh, and just be God. absolute concert, and just be rolling news. But in parliament, you just turn up and do a speech at one o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. So there's an idea. Does that mean, is that when we can stop listening to any of it and tune out? Precisely. And, uh, I think that's what the rest of the population do, Matt. So yes, which is why, them. which is why um, uh, we banned talking about it this week. We may, I imagine, we'll have to come back to it at some point, but I'm going to put it off as long as possible. Uh, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device. You can sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. And do leave a review of the podcast on iTunes because it helps us claw up the charts a little bit. Um, we'll be at the Lib Dems next week. We're going so you don't have to. Um, tune, <laughs> tune in and listen to that if you want to. Otherwise, uh, for now, uh, from Grant Tucker, Roland Watson, Rachel Fester and me, Matt Chorley, it's... Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.